Hey guys, uh, today I have my friend uh, Darren King. Um, he has his own podcast. I'm really excited for him to be on the show. Um, I had another friend kind of tell me about his podcast, and so I checked it out. I really liked it, and I thought that he could, you know, hopefully synthesize that um, to the best of his ability and uh, tell us um, kind of what he's into. Um, and so I'll let uh, Darren kind of introduce himself. Hi, Kendall and everyone else. Uh, yeah, so my name is Darren King. I go by the, the hashtag or, or the handle exoacadamian often um, because when I first sort of started my podcast, it was kind of more anonymous. Uh, um, and uh, over time, I've kind of come into the, the four more. Um, but my background is, is kind of diverse. I had, um, like you, um, part of my background was as a Christian and as evangelical, um, had experiences of a spiritual nature, when I was younger, um, kind of went through the whole postmodern deconstruction kind of thing in my 20s, kind of went into like the emerging church and Brian McLaren, then in a, that whole scene, um, eventually kind of felt like um, where I landed was, you know, spiritual, but not religious kind of thing, um, even though I know that's kind of a bit of a, a false, uh, you know, kind of division sometimes. But generally having this sense of there being kind of this numinous quality to life that there's these a metaphysical reality that underpins and overgirds everything. Um, and along my, my way, I also had encounters with, you know, with, with people and with beings that seem to defy normal conventions of what's possible. So there's sort of like a parallel between sort of religious history and what people call the UFO phenomenon. And over the last few years, I've really dedicated myself to understanding that sort of overarching metaphysical kind of architecture and, uh, you know, even looking into Jacques Vallée and work like that around his book, Passport to Magonia, could these actually be the same thing? Could they be just the, the same thing, kind of encountering entities that are non-conventional, but the way we categorize them over time perhaps changes? And perhaps not. Maybe there's more than, than one type. I kind of lean towards that. I think that when people talk about disclosure, um, it's much more than, you know, aliens coming from Zeta Reticuli or something in spacecraft. I think the nature of reality is really in play when we talk about disclosure. So that's kind of the, the broad brush of what I'm kind of into. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I think it goes without saying, but uh, today on the podcast, we're here to answer the question, are aliens real? <laughs> or first, first question, uh, at least. Yeah. So um, before we went on the air, you and I talked about this a little bit because of course the question is, what do we mean by alien? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when I think back to um, my biblical studies um, background, you know, often that term was used in a variety of ways. Sometimes it could mean the tribe that was over the hill, right? They were the other, right? They were the alien. All right. I said once that a friend of mine huh. actually was in a band in high school called Alien and the Psycho. And that was actually based on um, a translation of a, of a script reference in the Old Testament, right? So all that is to say... What alien means um, kind of varies depending on what context you're in, right? So in, in modern 21st century America and Western civilization, that tends to mean space alien, right? Like someone who's come from some other star system, some other galaxy and traveled here in a spacecraft or something. But alien, the way that I use it is more like other, something other than conventional understanding of who we are. You know, I have a friend, Mike Masters, who teaches in Montana, and he's developed a whole notion of some of these others that people encounter might be what he calls extratempestrials rather than extraterrestrials, meaning that they may be us from the future. And his background is in 
evolutionary biology, and he and with a specialty in the hominid line. So when he looks at what we typically describe as a gray alien, he sees a being that looks like what we will look like in maybe 10,000 years or so if mm. we follow a certain kind of evolutionary trend. Mm. So all that is to say, I'm convinced something is real, that they are real. The question is, what are they? And to answer that question fully, we kind of have to you know, dive into what is reality, right? And who are we, right? These are the questions we need to ask. And I kind of lean towards the notion that it's not just one thing. There's likely many different forms and, um, and they may be coming from different kinds of origin sources. And part of what I've been following is the work of people like Donald Hoffman, who've uh, argued that. Love him. Yeah, yeah. It's great stuff because basically he says, you know, what, what we perceive through our normal senses and kind of the default waking mode is only one small slice of what reality actually is that in order to survive, we actually have to filter out the vast majority of data that's coming our way. And I would argue, including other kinds of beings that haven't been necessary for us to be aware of because they didn't directly uh, impact our survival like a lion would kind of thing. So that's my big answer to uh, the question. Aliens are real? I would say yes. But then it begs the question, what are they? How many kinds are there? Et cetera. Right. And I just want to make a note. Donald Hoffman is a uh, cognitive psychologist and um, studies how our, our brain and our perception impacts how we see reality and uh, just basically that uh, we don't see reality as it is. And there's a lot more to reality. Uh, is that yeah. how you would kind of sum it up? Yeah, he would actually even go as far as to say, we don't just even see a small slice of reality. We see something more like an interface with icons, like a computer screen. Symbolic. Really have almost no one-to-one uh, you know, relationship with the underlying reality, right? So it, it goes, it, a lot of people, their assumption is, the kind of intuition most scientists even have, is that sure, maybe we don't see everything, but we're seeing, what we see is is accurate somehow. And Hoffman's argument is that it's more like a computer interface with icons. I see a trash icon on my screen. That doesn't at all represent what really that mm. is, right? It's zeros mm. and ones and binary code, uh, but it's useful to allow me to navigate around my computer and so his argument is in the same way the evolutionary process has served up icons uh, that have helped us move through the world in a way that we can survive. But it's not a one-to-one relationship at all with what underlying reality actually is. Mm, right. Yeah, that's really good. Um, so do you want to kind of go into, um, yeah, just how, why you think they're, they're, they're real? What, um, what evidence have you come, come by? Yeah, and again, I think the question here is like, how wide do we open the aperture? Because <laughs> let's start with um, you know, the modern UFO phenomenon, right? So from mm-hmm. around the 1940s or so, although you could go back before then, so maybe I will go back a bit before then. So even in the the turn of the 20th century, uh, there was people encountering strange flying objects that they called airships, which tended to look like the next generation of what was the cutting edge technology of the time. So kind of like blimp-like, you know, um, aircraft kind of thing was what they had at the time. So people would run into sometimes humanoid-looking beings, sometimes a bit different than that. They were flying these airships, but they seemed to always be uh, like a cutting edge or the next generation of what we had available. So they seemed to sort of mirror human technology, but be something beyond that as well, which raises questions, were those really airships at all, or were they some kind of other intelligence's way of um, manifesting in a way that we would recognize, but would mm. also stretch our imagination as well. Because as you look throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century, we see that often happen, that whatever 
our conception of like cutting edge sci-fi kind of craft would look like, they tend to be just beyond that, right? So you have the flying saucers of the 40s and whatnot, and then you have things like the triangles in the 80s, right? Black triangles, and and more recently, like the Tic Tac kind of um, oval kind of uh, objects that were spotted in around 2004 and since then. So number one, we have many, many, many sightings, right? Um, and, and one thing that's been great about more recent technology is no longer just witness testimony, but we should say, speaking of witness testimony, this includes like expert witnesses like pilots and whatnot that are mm-hmm. trained by the military to know what's up there, right? They're aware of what our aircraft looks like, what enemy aircraft look like, what a satellite looks like, you know, what a comet looks like, whatever, a star, um, strange looking clouds. They're they're trained to be expert witnesses because they have to make split second decisions. And they are reporting that they are seeing objects, not only that look nothing like what uh, they've been trained to recognize, but that are behaving with flight characteristics that kind of defy our understanding of how something could even stay aloft to begin with, right? So then it raises questions about, is this a new kind of physics? Are these defying physics? What's going on? They don't seem to have any known means of propulsion. We don't see any kind of heat signature. Uh, we don't see wings, right? So we don't even understand how they're staying aloft. They seem to be able to hover with, again, no means of being able to do that. They can make 90 degree turns at, at breakneck speed, which would crush a human being because of the G-forces, right? So these are all things that have been observed, um, but um, defy our understanding of how flight is supposed to work. And we also more recently have all sorts of sensor technology that is also recognizing these things and, and capturing them, whether it's radar or uh, you know various kinds of sensor systems that that say something is there in physical reality because even our sensors are picking up. It's not just an optical illusion, in other words. And that's the sort of the sightings. But then, of course, another really key component is the interaction with the beings themselves, right? And this kind of has not been talked so much about in the, in the mainstream. So even though the notion of UFOs or UAP, right, has increased recently, um, it's still, the public is not really talking much about alien abductions, contact experiences. Mm-hmm. Yet these also have been front and center, uh, definitely in the 20th century, right, where, where people interact with beings that not only show up and act like they're, you know, Zitareticulans come here from some science expedition, but they actually seem to impact people spiritually and often, you know, change their perspective on reality. Many people come away being less materialistic, less fearing of death, those kind of things that kind of mirror more what we think of as a spiritual encounter kind of thing, right? Which is my final point, kind of opens up the question of, again, even once you get past the surface veneer, are these perhaps the same kinds of encounters that have been happening across the wide scope of human history and how we've, you know, labeled them as changed, right? So in ancient days, we might say, a, a you know, a flying chariot or something, right, in the sky, because that's the only metaphor we had. Now we say something else, right, that, that again, is comparison to what we have now. So many people now say, is that a drone, right? Um, and that's because our latest cutting edge technology is a drone. But nevertheless, they're doing things that even our cutting edge technology doesn't even get close to doing. And then you have to, you know, reckon with all these encounters over time that not only just happen in in physical reality, right, where people seem to wake up, many, 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 many cases of people waking up with beings at the end of their bed that seem to be able to just pass through walls, right? Physical structures don't seem to stop them. 
But um, these people are often taken then either on board craft or onto um, some sort of alternate realm or alternate state of consciousness as well, which again speaks to some of the way people in the past might have talked about encounters with fairies or again, kind of religious figures in deep history. So begs the question, you know, what are they? What are we? And what's really going on here? Yeah, that's great. I want to get back to that, but I want, I want to go back a little bit and just, you know, if someone was going to get rebuttal, um, they might say, is it possible that, uh, you know, another nation maybe in secret has developed technology that we're not aware of and right. that somehow could be, could be them? How would you answer that? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think we definitely have to be honest about that and assess that. Um, and I think the only reason why the UFO slash UAP, which by the way, that it used to stand for unidentified aerial phenomena. Now they've expanded it to mean unidentified anomalous phenomena because we realize it's not just necessarily in the air that people are seeing things. Sometimes these things go in the ocean. Sometimes they seem to come out of solid rock. Um, but nevertheless, yeah, I think there are definitely um, going to be some things we encounter that might be just adversarial aircraft or something or cutting edge technology. But the key here is, again, touching on what I said before, is that the nature of these, uh, the way these things operate is so beyond us that we, we when we analyze it, when military experts analyze it, they, they can't come up with any kind of bizarre trend in history mm -hmm. where suddenly our adversaries like, you know, China or Russia mm -hmm. would be suddenly so far ahead of us because it's, it's a functionally completely different paradigm about how those things are in the air. Like they're not, they're not following any of the traditional understandings of how aircraft operate. And when you think about everything from the Wright brothers to an F-17, while they've become much more sophisticated, they still follow the same basic rules. You know, you need propulsion, you need wings mm -hmm. to keep you aloft, those kind of things. You still have to deal with G-forces. When you make a sharp turn, you're going to make an arc, right? Because you've got to deal with that. Um, these things do not seem to fly according to our understanding of how flight works. They make right angle turns that, again, not only seem impossible um, based on just inertia and gravity and things like that, but would crush occupants, right? So it's just how next generation these things are beyond even our conception of how we would even begin to know how to build something like that, that makes it, I would say, virtually impossible that they're actually adversarial aircraft. Right. Yeah. Great answer. Um, so I want to get back to, I think you made a great point about um, ancient aliens and history and how um, I, someone else made a good point that I was listening to. Uh, like Hinduism, the gods are, you know, they're green, they're blue, they're, um, right. you know, different. Um, and then we do have ancient texts that uh, kind of talk about this phenomenon, but obviously they're using the language of their time. They're using the symbology of what, makes sense to them, like you said, like flying chariots. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think that's, that's a good point. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you raised a great point about, uh, Hinduism, right? Because sometimes the monotheistic religions, we tend to have really narrow conceptions of, uh, God being one thing, kind of God, the father, you know, and some people kind, mm -hmm. of, kind of really trite notions of, you know, a grandfatherly figure sitting on a cloud or something and angels playing harps and whatnot. <laughs> But, but in some other traditions, we, yeah, we have a lot of sort of intermediate levels of deities, mm -hmm. right, who do sometimes, like you say, have strange colorings and whatnot, strange um, different ways their faces are structured, which you could very well argue might be an early rendition of what they're encountering that we might call today a gray alien or something like that. 
mm-hmm. or a blue alien because those are reported as well. Right, right. Um, and so going back to what you were talking about with craft, um, last podcast, I um, had someone on and we, we talked about um, my friend Brandy. We talked about dimensions and that um, in, in kind of, you know, there's string theory and then there's many more dimensions in the third dimension that um, these these beings might be operating um, out of these higher dimensions that might have a, a, a wider um a deeper perspective, understanding of these dimensions, how to operate in them. And that could explain how these, these crafts or how they um, can, you know, come into our physical reality and seem to blip out as well. Um, So I don't know if you want to speak more on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, Jacques Vallée famously said about the UFO phenomenon that um, what the UFO phenomenon teaches us is that we do not understand space time. So he didn't say, it's, they've got some interesting tweaks on our understanding of space-time. He, he was sort of saying what they do is so contrary to what we understand that it, it suggests that our fundamental understanding of reality is just wrong. You know, like mm. not just slightly off, but but quite wrong. Um, <laughs> woefully incomplete, you could say. Maybe even barking up the wrong tree, ultimately. Um, and so, yeah, like you say, there's there's these notions that they seem to blip in and blip out of reality almost like they're coming in from a different kind of frame altogether. And, you know, in the 20th century, when the notion of multiple dimensions and even parallel universes kind of came into the fore, mm-hmm. then when people looked at the data from the UFO phenomenon, they said, oh, well, maybe that's what's happening, right? Maybe they're blipping in and out of a parallel universe or something uh, because they don't seem to be moving through space-time as we understand it. But to your point about, you know, M-theory, string theory, these different notions of a much more complex reality, and the fact that these others seem to demonstrate a much more robust understanding of the fundamental nature of reality, which allows them to manipulate space-time, for instance, in ways that we just don't understand yet. I think that's absolutely key to to where we need to go in trying to understand this more, and even scientific inquiry. Uh, And what's, what's fascinating about that is one of the things I've done in my research over the last year or so is branch out into other fields of inquiry to see is there kind of like a parallel in other fields that kind of pointing in this direction of space-time being, you know, maybe not fundamental. And so what we already talked about, Donald Hoffman's work, right, and mm-hmm. in neuroscience and evolutionary biology and things like that. Um, and then we also have in quantum physics, you know, we have cutting-edge physicists like Nima Arkani Hamed, who are actually going so far as to say, we already know that space-time cannot be foundational, right? It cannot mm. be the fundamental fabric of reality. <clears throat> and he'll say things like space-time is doomed, right? Which Donald Toppin likes to quote him on that. <laughs> and what he means by that is not that space-time is about to blow up or something or implode, but that it is a model is doomed because we already know enough to know that it cannot be foundational. There must be a deeper structure from which we get like derivative aspects like space-time and quantum theory. So, and he's already running experiments and even using mathematical models to try to depict what this might look like. What what would the deeper structure be like so as to give you something like space-time and quantum theory as a result, kind of as a byproduct kind of thing, right? So so that's really fascinating to me that that not only do we see evidence from these beings and craft that come into our reality, suggesting that there's something deeper than space-time, that they might be even becoming from beyond our space-time construct, right? Which mm-hmm. which stretches the notion that they're just ETs, right? That's where we get these notions of them being perhaps interdimensionals or something. Mm-hmm. 
But it, I think it probably even goes beyond that and that our, our notions right now, our models are just too limited and we don't have enough uh, even imagination to really know what we don't know. Um, but they seem to be operating at this deeper structure. And what's interesting is in these different fields of inquiry, uh, you know, quantum physics being one of the key ones, we seem to see evidence that this deeper structure does exist, even if we never interact with it directly. Right. Yeah. And that's all, that's all great. And that kind of, that, that gets into consciousness and, um, as we, you know, Eastern religions have, um, gone on about this mystics a long time about that consciousness is, um, is fundamental and that, you know, the materialists would say that consciousness is a, um, product of our brain and chemical reactions. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I believe that doesn't really make sense and that consciousness just uses, um, physical reality to, as a vehicle, as a tool for, for, um, how to interact and that depending on the tools using, um, whether it's a tree or, uh, our brain, it, it's different. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that is one of the fundamental questions here. And I think that's what my research into these different fields, um, has kind of led towards. That's why I partly I called my, my podcast point of convergence is because we see these different fields all pointing in a similar directions, kind of like a signpost pointing into the fog mm. saying reality is not what we think it is. You know, mm -hmm. not just UFO phenomenon, but um, parapsychological research, psi phenomena, you know, precognition, telekinesis, telepathy, those kind of things. Um, and even like near death experiences and out of body mm. experiences, right? Where people seem to have, or even psychedelic journeys, right? Where people have these extremely vivid and meaningful, right? Experiences when their brains on a scan look pretty dormant. And that, that flies in the face of what physicalists would expect, right? If our mind experiences are just the epiphenomena of brain states, then we should see a corresponding brain state to make sense of the vivid experience we're having. And yet we don't see that. In fact, it seems like when the, the normal default mode of the brain shuts down, goes dormant, then it's like something beyond, something non-local to consciousness comes alive, right? And those experiences feel more real than this does, right? So these are these are fascinating uh, notions to consider. And again, you know, the current physicalist reductionistic materialism kind of mindset and mentality is is fairly you know short lived. We we lived with a very different notion of reality for a very very long time, even in different civilizations around the world. But because we've been able to transform our civilization so much and have cell phones and satellites and spacecraft and microwave ovens, because of our ability to, to model nature's behavior, we've kind of assumed that um, this notion of physicalism must be adequate, must accurately describe reality. But as a philosopher I like to follow named Bernardo Castro points out, you know, what, what we've been able to do is model the behavior of nature. It doesn't mean we know what nature ultimately is or what it derives from, right? All you need to know is what it's going to do under certain conditions, and then you can develop technology to manipulate that and take advantage of it, right? But in the same way that in the Middle Ages, we kind of, you know, said uh, willy-nilly, you know, okay, the priests are the ones that understand reality. We'll look to them to understand. Mm -hmm. Because of the success of, of science in modeling nature and transforming our civilization, we've kind of done the same thing in modern times with scientists and just assume that they must know what they're talking about, about ultimate reality, because they've been able to transform our civilization with technology. But again, that's really 
two separate matters. You can model nature and, and its behavior and transform civilization on the physical level. That doesn't mean you ultimately understand what it is. We're, we're back to the, the drawing board there. And all sorts of evidence seems to be suggesting that, again, not just in quantum theory and in neuroscience, right? The hard problem of consciousness in neuroscience is like, how, how do we actually describe in any kind of coherent way how conscious experience arises from these uh, neurochemical reactions in, a, in the physical brain? And, and it's kind of been this, this promissory note written by physicalists saying, well, we don't understand it yet, but one, one day we will. So just trust us. It must be an epiphenomenon of the brain. Consciousness must be. But we, we can't even describe in a scientifically coherent way something like the smell of chocolate. Like, like how mm. do we have that conscious experience based on its brain state? And how could you, as this is what Donald Hoffman likes to point out, how, how would a brain state look for the smell of, con- of, smell of chocolate versus the smell of strawberries or something or rose, right? We can't even do, th- do that, let alone adequately describe this vast array of consciousness and how consciousness is consistent over time, the sense of I amness, right? So, yeah, so we've kind of come full circle where a lot of science is now beginning to, those who are bold anyway, and not afraid of going against the mainstream, there's this growing consensus or at least momentum building that we're kind of coming back around to, like you say, kind of an Eastern kind of spiritual notion like non-duality, that everything is connected ultimately, and that consciousness is primary and things like the physical world are epiphenomena of consciousness, not the other way around. Yeah, uh, great points. Um, <laughs> great job. Um, yes, I think it's important to note, uh, you know, we're kind of getting into epistemology. What, how do we know truth and what is truth? And, you know, science is kind of, um, especially modern science is backed on the notion of materialism that, um, you know, it's what we can measure, what we can, um, and, and the problem with that is that, you know, that that's all physical. And so if there's something more than that, then they kind of, they get stuck. Um, and, um, so I think that we're modern day, we're coming to the recognition and realization that, uh, phenomenology is important and something valuable to, um, try to make sense out of. And, um, I think, you know, science is, we're we're starting to get there and see how, how can we make sense of this, even if, um, we're kind of on the edge of our uh, ability to measure things physically and all that, all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Great points. And, and I think a couple of things come to mind there. One is that one of the things we've seen, like as an implication of the double slit experiment with quantum experiments, whatnot, is that you can't actually really separate the observer from the environment mm-hmm. he or she is trying to observe. Right. So this notion that we can objectively be able to identify uh, variables that we can control for 100% of the time so that we can have a strong sense that we know what's going on. That kind of goes out the door a little bit with quantum theory and quantum experiments. Um, and, you know, it, it just it just goes to show that it's more like what happened with science was, again, because there was so much confidence about what scientific theory and the scientific method was able to give us in terms of a better, more robust understanding of what goes on around us, right? The behavior of nature that we became so confident about that. I would say, you know, verging on hubris, right? Mm-hmm. Where we said, how about we just say this is all there really is, right? <laughs> how about we say that things like that fuzzy feeling of love and, uh, new, you know, this, the numinous and, um, 
you know, the smell of a rose and even the, the feeling that I am something. And I was also here last week and five years ago. It's gone so far as, as that some physicalists will actually posit that consciousness is actually an illusion, right? That it's some sort of not, not either the machinations of the physical brain or it's some sort of weird illusion that, that we live with. And yet, of course, what's ironic about that is that, you know, the one thing we can be sure of is that we're having conscious experience. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> we wouldn't be conducting scientific experiments if we didn't have conscious experience, mm -hmm. right? So to to try to like, uh, you know, wash that away like it doesn't matter when it like, you know, undergird <laughs> the entire endeavor is, is right. <laughs> at least. Oh, uh, that's funny. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Um, so, you know, I, I guess... Um, maybe backing up a little bit, how, how did you get into this in the first place? Uh, I, I, I know, you know, I've listened to your podcast, you have your own personal experience. Yeah. So I would say that, you know, there was a time where I was a pretty uh, hardcore left brain um, reductionist, uh, you know, hyper rationalist kind of thing, went through that season of life. And, um, and, and really what changed that for me, which is true for, I think a lot of people is, is personal experience not just knowing people that um, have had experiences, people that I trust and seem very credible to me. And I know they know how to, you know, distinguish the difference between, you know, an illusion or having bad pizza and, you know, uh, seeing something in a dream versus actually experiencing something that seemed to be manifesting in what we consider physical reality or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, so I met people like that. Uh, you know, my ex-wife was also one of those people who just, you know, um, when she was really, really young, her mom saw so many things happening around her that even though they came from a sort of pseudo Christian tradition, she took her to a, a kind of a medium one time to find out what was going on. And as soon as the medium saw her walk in as a little girl, she said, oh, oh boy, you're a conduit. Like they're coming to you whether you want it or not kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of been, was my experience with her too. You know, we would experience things together that I, I could not explain away after a period of time, right? You can explain it away once or twice, but not when it keeps happening. And one of the, the, the key turning points for me was an event that didn't actually originally uh, strike me as something associated with the UFO phenomenon. Um, the more you look into this and research it, you recognize it's, it's a broader and deeper you know, phenomenology than many people realize. So what happened was in 2005, we were traveling across the country and she was pregnant uh, with our son at the time. And in the early morning hours of, in the hotel, um, I awoke to see kind of a female entity at the end of the bed. And at first thought it might be our three-year-old daughter who was in sleep in the bed next to us, but she was still in the bed. And this mm -hmm. being was too big to be her really, but your brain sort of first sort of like fights to understand what are you seeing, right? Um, because it kind of had an ethereal quality to it uh, as well. Um, anyway, I, I proceeded to get up out of bed and walk towards this um, entity, this female entity, and it proceeded to go pass right through the wall. And, um, and then I did a very, very strange thing, which I only later learned out is quite common. I turned around and went right back to bed as if like nothing big happened, <laughs> got a glass of milk or something, right? Um, but thankfully, and this is so key here, that speaks to maybe how often this may be happening and people just don't realize it even is my ex-wife also saw it. Right. So she sort of shook me out of my stupor and said, what are you doing going to sleep? You know what we just saw? Like, what are we going to do about it? Kind of thing. And what's also interesting is I turned around to come back to bed. 
she saw the entity come back through the wall, proceed to walk down the length of the hotel room and then through the front door, not open the front door, but walk through the front door. Right. So, uh-huh. um, so we, we kind of talked it over, decided not to stick around for the continental breakfast. And we just kind of got out of there. <laughs> um, but you know, that, that always stuck with me and I didn't know what to do with that. I remember emailing people and I didn't have any notion that this could be associated with the UFO phenomenon. But I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that humanoid and even human looking others are quite common. You know, they're one of the most common types that are identified that people encounter other than kinds of light beings or, you know, balls of light and, or the short and tall graves. But, but besides that, the humanoid and human looking beings are the ones most commonly encountered actually. And this, this thing where they actually are able to control your behavior, where you do things that seem counterintuitive, like going to bed right after you saw something like this, right. Or people walking outside and are they going to see this amazing UFO display and they forgot, they forget to take a picture. They forget to take a picture, right. Even though they may mm-hmm. be avid photographers, right. Just things that again, skeptics easily attach onto and say, ah, oh, come on, what are the chances that would happen? Right. But one of the key data points in this phenomenon is that they do seem to be able to impact our perception and even our consciousness and even our behavior, right? So Mm. this shows you how much the consciousness piece is central to this phenomenon. So, you know, I've had experiences like that. And then more recently, last year, I was invited to this private retreat at the Monroe Institute, which is kind of known for their astral travel stuff and even some experiments the CIA was conducting back in the 70s, right? Um, so we kind of combined all these kind of like parapsychological uh, elements together. We we practice telepathy. We practice remote viewing. We also practice CE5, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, or HICE, which stands for Human Initiated Contact Events, where you basically send out this positive intention for benevolent others to interact with you. And um, this is a, a well-known kind of set of protocols, uh, going back to Stephen Greer, but certainly not just just associated with him. Um, there was a group called Mission Rama in South America that was doing this well before he was. And, and the notion is you come together, you sort of form a coherent field of intention with a group, group of people, although you could do it on your own as well. But in this case, we did it as a group of people. You know, we kind of, we, we, we had been in our little cubicles at the Monroe Institute and then hearing these audio signals coming through the wall and sort of preparing ourselves for what we were going to do. And then we all joined in this meadow and then, you know, had this shared intention uh, to to interact with phenomena in the sky. And sure enough, uh, we had numerous sightings and got a lot of it on film as well. We had a professional uh, person with um, with a really high-end camera that, that filmed this. And um, we submitted to MUFON and they concluded that sure enough, it was anomalous. They couldn't account for what it was. <clears throat> but what's also interesting is that we had a random number generator on the side of the mountain that also went non-random, not just when the the UAP showed up and things were happening in the sky, but also even when we joined together in that shared intention, at that very moment, you also see this, the, this random number generator go non-random. So in other words, it's, it's kind of like flipping a dice, right? Or rolling a dice or, or even flipping a coin, right? It's supposed to be one, zero, one, zero, basically, is that kind of follows that format. So that after five minutes, you're going to have about 50% ones, 50% mm-hmm. zeros, right? just like flipping a coin, heads and tails. But what happens is we see repeated evidence that when people interact with consciousness, we can make things like computers go non-random, programs go non-random, right? Which which begs the question, B, 
because again, according to a physicalist paradigm that thinks that your consciousness is like locked inside your skull right. and mine locked inside my skull, how number one could telepathy or something like psychic powers ever exist? But how on in the world could you actually make a random number generator on a side of a mountain go non-random just by in, mental intention alone, basically? Hmm. Um, so yeah, so I had numerous encounters and have seen things since then as well. Um, have in meditation practice kind of stumbled upon uh, a kind of a contact experience with feeling and sensing that something's talking back to me. And, and, and sometimes I would even wake up with um, notions in my head, fragments of information that I didn't know how they fit exactly. But as I walk through my week, they begin to make sense. It slots into here and there. So it kind of feels precognitive in that sense too, sometimes. So um, yeah, I've had a, an array of experiences and I'm now associated with an array of people that I see as trustworthy uh, um, who are also having these experiences. And thankfully, we've progressed enough that this isn't nearly as scandalous and uh, you know worthy of mocking as it used to be, right? Because when the UFO phenomenon was flaring up in the 20th century, the US government was doing its darndest to discredit those who reported mm -hmm. sightings and encounters. That's beginning to change, right? Especially since 2017, when uh, that famous article came out in New York Times, actually documenting video and photographic evidence of UAP that the military had captured. So, so yeah, but that's the, the, the long answer to your question in terms of, yes, I've had my own encounters and that's informed my perspective, certainly. Yeah, that's great. And I've talked to people um, unnamed who've uh, taken psychedelics and have had experiences with uh, ETs as well. Um, and yeah, you were just getting into to my next question, talking about the military. And um, so why, why did the military try to uh, discredit people and are now, um, you know, they, they came out and say that, you know, you, we admit there's UFOs and <laughs> we've seen them for a long time. Right. It's, it's a fascinating question, right? Like what, what, um, what, how did the calculus train change and why? Right. So in the 20th century, we have to remember that any event is embedded within a historical context, right? So mm. a lot of this happened, um, you know, in the midst of the cold war, right? So the first thing that the, the U.S. government was trying to find out was, could this be, you know, Soviet kind of um, aircraft we're seeing, or even like the remnants of sort of some breakaway Nazi technology or something that we're seeing, right? Mm -hmm. um, but in the midst of the Cold War, there was this concern that, because again, that's the con contextual framework, that not only were sightings uh, had of these things, but there was supposedly, and now we have a lot of evidence to suggest there were sometimes crashes, right? Which begs the question, how does a spacecraft successfully fly from Alpha Centauri and then crash when they try to navigate the atmosphere of the, of the planet? Seems unlikely, right? Uh, I think one of the things this phenomenon challenges you on is, is your assumptions. You really have to put your assumptions aside and just try to look at the data. And the data suggests we've had crashes and, and the US government has been able to retrieve some of those vehicles. So this is not, we're well beyond optical illusions at this point. You know, we are definitely, you know, like hard knock on it, it makes a sound. Technology has been captured and taken to places like Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and other places, you know, Area 51 comes to mind. Um, there's, a, there's a there there in these kind of the folklore that's risen up around this. Um, but of course, the concern, if you're a U.S. military and you're, you're recovering craft, your concern is what if the Soviets are doing it too? And hmm. what if they can reverse engineer it, right? And uh, then suddenly have a huge advantage over us. And on top of that, it was not just 
you know, technology that was sort of next generation. It was so next generation that it was quite shocking and concerning to the U.S. military because we would have no defense against it. If, the, if this, whatever is operating these things, decided to invade the earth or whatever, we would not be able to stop them. Not only mm-hmm. because the technology is so advanced, but they also seem to be able to control our perception of space-time and even our behavior, right? So you don't even have to worry about disarming a group if you can just control their behavior, you know, remotely, mm-hmm. thing, right? So, so if you're a government and you're a military whose entire purpose is to defend the population, and you know darn well you're seeing evidence of technology and capacities that you couldn't begin to defend against, then you just don't talk about it. You, you don't, you know, hold a press conference and say, I hate to say this, but this is what's going on. <laughs> We're not saying. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, when people are, you know, having these beings show up at the end of their beds. You know, you could have a, an entire brigade, military brigade outside. It's not going to stop them. <laughs> mm-hmm. They pass through walls. They they can they can put people into suspended animation. You know, like I, I know cases where people, when they were young, they'd be sitting around a dinner table and eating with their family, and suddenly the entire family would like freeze, like mid you know mid bite, spoon mm-hmm. halfway to the mouth, and while this person still can move around, and then gray aliens walk in. So they seem to be able to suspend even our local space time. Which again, I think speaks to this notion that space time cannot be foundational. It must be a construct. And they seem to be able to actually like manipulate that directly. Mm-hmm. So they may not even be, you know, operating within space time with these craft. They may be manipulating space time around these craft, right? Mm-hmm. Which is really you know, I've seen evidence that that maybe is what's going on, that kind of level. So that really, you know, is is a whole different kind of level of paradigm. So, you know, when the midst of the Cold War was going on and we knew that we could not defend against these things if we needed to, then we just, on the one hand, publicly scoffed at the whole thing and said, there's nothing there, right? And, you know, Project Blue Book and these different operations were basically a front, right? A ruse because they acted like they were looking into it. But the whole point was to say, turns out it's all swamp gas. People saw the planet Venus, you know, people had too much to drink, whatever, you know, like uh, this person's mentally unstable. And if there ever was a credible person who really was saying, no, I know what I saw and it's this and this, they would go so far as to like basically try to character assassinate these people, right? Uh, sometimes they would lose their jobs and whatnot. And and even military people that threatened to talk about it, they would mm-hmm. lose their pension. You know, you'll be discharged dishonorably and all that kind of thing. So they were on the, on the inside uh, frantically trying to understand this, right? They were really looking into it. They knew there was a there there, but then publicly saying nothing to see here, folks, please move on. I think one of the reasons why it changed to answer the second part of your question, maybe around 2017, is partly because we live in a very different era right now, right? Mm. With social media, with everyone having a, a, a what, what account, you know, is, a, is the equivalent of a high-end camera compared to what was the 70s or 80s, right? And everyone carry ones around in their pocket. They can take video, they can take photos. So, you know, there was this famous flap that happened in the 90s in Phoenix, the Phoenix, you know, lights and these kind of slow moving black triangles that seemed to pass over the city, massive objects. And many, many people saw it, including the governor of the state at the time. And if that were to happen today, we would have, you know, social media would be lit up, right? With everyone, mm-hmm. like thousands and thousands and thousands, like probably hundreds of thousands of videos and, photog- and photographs, right? So I think on the one hand, they know it's not something that's easily containable like it used to be, right? Like how many people back in the 50s were carrying around cameras to take photos of these things 
Uh, and there was no social media to go, hey, you're not going to believe what I just saw, right? It was like slow moving. Maybe a few of your neighbors find out, but then you don't even really want to tell your neighbors because the U.S. military is doing a good job of convincing you that those people are crazy, right? Right. So, so that we're in a very different social kind of dynamic now um, and technological dynamic. The last piece, though, may be that you know there's been some talk, and even you know an ex-CIA analyst um, named John Ramirez has talked about um, saying that you know intelligence circles have known that something major is coming in the 2020s, maybe around 2026, 2027. And they've known about this for some time. And so the shift in policy in 2017 was basically a slow run up of desensitizing people to these notions so that when whatever happens in 2026, 27 happens, it's not such a shock to the system. So they've long wanted to keep this secret and under wraps, but once they have become convinced that number one, they can't contain it like they used to because of social media and, and phones and whatnot, but that also something may be happening in our future that at this point they have no choice but to try to slowly prepare people for it, but in kind of a slow bleed kind of disclosure, right? So that people don't get the shock all in one go, but that over time they become more and more familiar with these notions uh, so that when it actually happens, if it happens, this major event, then people are not so completely taken off guard. Hmm. Mm, that's good. Um, that's really fascinating. I mean, I have not heard about the 2026 event. I want to get to that, but I think we should say that for a little bit later. Um, just want to say about technology. Um, it, it's funny. I think we kind of hit a sweet spot and now we've passed that. So the sweet spot was, Hey, we have technology. We can capture this ourselves. And, but now technology is so advanced we can, you know, fake stuff. So it's like, well, you know, what is, what is credible? So, um, I think it was here and, and now it's, it's kind of gone. So it's kind of gone the other way. It's kind of totally kind of true, funny. right? I mean, you can go on Facebook or Twitter and you can see thousands of what look like amazing videos and photographs, but you know, with Photoshop and, and CGI, you know, you, you really at the point where you can't trust the naked eye. Right. So some people will still say, mm, I don't know, man, that looks like CGI. And I'm like, we're beyond being able to mm -hmm. you know, distinguish with the naked eye, whether or not that's CGI, you need like really advanced, um, like photo analysis kind of software, like, you know, digital analysis, forensic analysis. So, so you're an excellent point. We actually are, are past that now. And even if people did capture actual footage, half the people would say that's fake. That's CGI. Right. right? So we're, we're at that place now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just want to make a note. Um, I thought it was really interesting. I was talking to someone and, and he said something I never thought of before. And, you know, this may or may not be true, but, you know, uh, if you think about it in history, until recently, our, our technology has been very um, antiquated. You know, it's, it's not been very advanced, but uh, it's really advanced the last, you know, 100 years or so. Um, and he said, you know, he, he believes that it was it was ATs that gave us this technology. And that's why we've advanced so, so quickly. I don't know if you've heard or thought about that. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the um, the narratives that kind of gets um, tossed around. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think um, one of the. Um, more shocking aspects of disclosure is not just who these others are and how many there are and how many different origin sources they have, but also the degree to which the, you know, official institutions of humanity have gone out of their way, not only to suppress that information, but also to create false narratives so that much of what we've learned about 20th century history is false and, and, and is deliberately like scrubbing the UFO phenomenon from the picture. So not only do we have lots of evidence that, for instance, NASA 
was scrubbing photos for a long time that were taken and that, you know, astronauts that go up into space have to sign non-disclosure agreements because they regularly see stuff, right? But on top of that, you know, we, yeah, we, we have not just a scrubbing, but a, but a, you know, a false narrative that's been presented about 20th century history. Uh, you know, Philip, uh, Colonel Philip Corso came out with a book uh, the day after Roswell, I think it was. And he talks about that, that basically he was in charge of a division that was all about, I mean, people might've superficially thought that he was dealing with, you know, recovered Soviet craft, crashed craft and whatnot, and was trying to work on reverse engineering that. But what he actually says is that it was, no, it was recovered craft from like places like Roswell, right? Where we actually had all sorts of wreckage that we can then reverse engineer, right? We can say, mm. how does this thing work? How would you construct it? Blah, blah. And so, yeah, in his, in his book, he basically makes that exact point you're saying that many of the leaps in technology we saw happen in the 20th century were because of reverse engineered um, technology that had been recovered from ET craft and whatnot. Mm, right. That's good. Um, I've heard from someone and um, that there's kind of three groups um, that have to do with UFOs that are you know into it or in the know, whatever. There's the military, there's the uh, disclosure group, um, and then there's kind of the spiritual new age. And so um, I was wondering if you wanted to get into that and how um, they're tied or, or into uh, UFOs and ETs. Right. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really important one, I think, because because we've not had the academy, you know, science and universities really studying this, right? Because they haven't felt that they could, even if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I sometimes hear from academics who would love to study this, but still are not convinced that the the environment is safe enough for them to do so, right? Um, when John Mack was actually interviewing abductees and contactees back in the 90s and saying these people are not delusional they're not they're not you know um demonstrating any kind of um mental illness they seem like well-grounded people and on top of that they seem to demonstrate the signs of post-traumatic stress uh, syndrome suggesting Mm -hmm. that they really did encounter something because you can't fake that right if your body's having those kind of reactions it has registered something happening to you right but Harvard basically tried to, uh, you know, take away his credentials and, you know, kick him out of his position, basically, because he dared to say this stuff was in some way real, right? That's all he was doing. And mm-hmm. and the irony is in science and the academy, we're supposed to be able to ask the biggest questions, right? Inquiry is supposed to be what it's all about. But he dared to, you know, to go outside the box. And there was this one famous case where someone said to him, you know, if John, if you had just come forward and said, you discovered a new pathology that you wanted to add to the, you know, to the <laughs> array of pathologies that would have been fine. But instead you chose like you wanted to redefine reality. <laughs> the data took him, right? So you go where the data takes you, no matter how much it's, you know, challenges our paradigms. But yeah, to your question about the different groups, the reason why I bring that up is because science and the Academy has avoided this topic. People kind of, kind of go in with their assumptions and their, their, you know, their, um, preconceived notions of what this is and there's no kind of scientific rigor applied to it to, to demonstrate this is my hypothesis and this is what the evidence supports it you know is or not right so you get some in the sort of spiritual crowd who will come in and it's one of two things it's either all demons and darkness right mm-hmm. or it's all love and light right mm-hmm. so you, you kind of get right. those two things and a lot of it comes down to people just you know leaning towards whatever reality 
they prefer, right? If they prefer right. reality where everything coming from beyond is, is better than us, is pure, you know, is like, uh, you know, complete goodness, then, then they're going to see that and, and even go so far as to either explain away the, the negative encounters or the things that seem more uh, even neutral. They'll just say, well, you, you probably just have some stuff you haven't worked through, some shadow work you need to do. And so, you know, if you did that, you would not have those kind of encounters, right? So they mm -hmm. basically blame the people who are having the bad encounters. Um, you know, and, and you've got the sort of the, the, the sort of standard ufological crowd who were convinced this was all like a sci-fi ET thing, right? This must be um, space aliens coming from Zeta Reticuli or whatever. And so anything to do with spirituality or the ability to manipulate consciousness, things like that, they actually wanted to ignore that part of the data because they wanted the, the academy to take them seriously. So they would actually like, you know, just squeeze out this one little bit of data and say, this is what it is, right? And, and willfully ignore other aspects of data. So that's what we kind of have. We have these different groups that I would suggest to, to have any of those opinions in a really um, rigid way. You have to ignore, either ignore parts of the data or just not be very familiar with the full data. And when I look at the full data, I think what we see is, uh, you know, a plethora of uh, phenomenology and, and people experiencing different kinds of entities um, across the board, some some very benevolent, some neutral, sometimes some negative. Now, I'll just say as a caveat that there are times where just this sheer ontological shock, which is something that, that John Mack uh, coined, of just seeing something that is not supposed to be there, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> You've been taught your whole life should not be there, let alone at the end of your bed when you have doors locked right in the middle of the night. Um, that that alone can put us in that kind of fight or flight evolutionary response so at first it'll feel like that's darn negative. There's no way to right. paint it any other way. But sometimes over time, when people have had time to reflect, they realize, actually, I don't think that thing meant me any harm. You know, like I, I actually had an encounter with a mountain lion one time. I was I was hiking in a you know in a, a park like you know miles away from civilization basically by myself, shorts and a t-shirt, and a mountain lion walked out from behind a tree. And you can guarantee all the adrenaline in my body said. This thing is bad. <laughs> this is dangerous. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna survive, right? Um, but I got away, you know. Uh, even though there was one point where it chased me, but I realized it was chasing me because I was running, right? So it's kind of like <laughs> that, that predator prey thing kicked in, mm -hmm. but it's that, like evil intent, right? And only in retrospect, when I thought, you know, never once did I see it kind of like crouching like it wanted to jump. Never did I hear a growl. I just realized it was curious, right? But my initial response was absolute fear and uh, ascribing like you know negative intent to this thing that didn't have any negative intent hmm. if it had intended to eat me for lunch mountain lion behavior is to jump from behind you know snap your neck and drag you away uh, uh and he could have done that right because hmm. he came up from behind me but didn't just walked around in front of me anyway all that is to say there's that aspect too that sometimes just a sheer shock puts this in the negative category for people for a while, but then they've come to actually see it as positive over, over time. So the, the majority of cases actually are towards the positive. Um, but all it is to say, yeah, absolutely. You've got these different groups that are convinced it's this thing. And this other group thinks it's something else and they don't speak to each other and they try to just sort of discredit each other. And I think you can only, I think, get to that conclusion if you're not really being honest about the full data is what I would say. Mm, right. Yeah, that's great. Um, and that gets my next question, but I want to go back, um, real quick and 
you know, maybe this is the first thing we should have said is kind of bland now, but I think that, you know, our um, continued exploration of space and, you know, with the Hubble a telescope and the, the pictures we've gotten and um, the realization that there's, there's other planets out there that are like Earth um, that, you know, are habitable for life that just a statistical probability of being life is, is you know, astronomical. Um, and of course, you know, we mentioned different dimensions. And so, um, even if other planets don't seem habitable, um, that doesn't mean another dimension they aren't, or, you know, that, that that's even, a, a you know, higher dimensions that, you know, you need to reside on a planet or wh- whatever that means. Um, right. and so, uh, you know, maybe they're in a higher dimension and we just, we can't see them, you know? Yeah, exactly. Great points. I mean, yeah. So the first thing that's really shifted from the middle part of the 20th century, you know, like back then people initially thought these were aliens coming from Mars or Venus, right? Because that mm. our, our scope of uh, concern and awareness was not very broad at that point. But as time went on, we realized that according to our conventional understandings of life, places like Venus and Mars do not seem habitable, uh, don't seem conducive to uh, nurturing life. But as we've, as you said, like we explored more and more of the cosmos, we find that even though the kinds of planets that would be in that Goldilocks zone of even what the narrow definition we have of life, even though those planets are very rare, nevertheless, the cosmos is just so flippin' big, like mind-blowing, you can't wrap your mind around it, right? right. Um, that there's going to be so many galaxies and so many star systems that have um, still millions, you know, maybe more of those kinds of planets alone, right? So you... Um, in other words, even if it's the exception to the rule that you have a planet like Earth that could, you know, support life as we understand it, there's still going to be plenty of those, right? Um, and again, like you pointed out, that's just according to our narrow definition of life. The more we study even our own planet, we find life springing up in sometimes the most inhospitable kinds of environments, right? Like in like a sulfur cloud or something like that, right? So, so who knows what kind of life could spring up? Like you say that we don't even necessarily register because it's not been part of our evolutionary process to why would we need to know about like, you know, gaseous uh, snakes that exist in a, in a, you know, nebulous cloud somewhere in the stars when we never had to deal with that in our ongoing evolution. Right. So there's mm-hmm. this, you know, um, and like you say that, that just assumes like one physical cosmos, right. As being right. the totality of everything that is, if you have parallel universes or different dimensions uh, if, uh, you know, then it opens up all sorts of new possibilities. <laughs> if we find that space time, as we've been sort of pointing towards is actually not the foundational construct anyway, then who knows what's beyond that. Right. So, so Donald Hoffman would say <clears throat> he believes the, that reality is teeming with life, but we've been looking in the wrong place. We've been looking mm. on our interface, mm-hmm. right. Of our computer, right. And looking for icons of aliens, when really they're likely all outside of our desktop or our laptop, <laughs> we just haven't had the perceptual ability to perceive them up until now. So, so yeah, that this is something that's really shifted, uh, and it's a bit of a farce actually because you have groups like SETI, you know, studying you know the distant uh, reaches of the cosmos, trying to look for signs of biological life right. under very narrow parameters, right? Like parameters that would have showed up. As, as the way human civilization would have showed up like with radio waves and things like in 1960 or something, right? So if you have groups that are so advanced, because the, the age of the cosmos is so diverse, right? Some areas are so much older than others. Mm-hmm. You could have civilizations that could be, you know, hundreds of millions of years beyond us. 
and we think about how much our technology has changed in 100 years, right? Going right. from a horse and buggy to, you know, spacecraft that have now left the, the you know, the solar system in 100 years. So, so we can't even fathom what a million or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of years would go get you to. And, and for sure, without a doubt, if we have any inkling of imagination, we should recognize that at that point, we're dealing with a scope that we can't even conceive of. So to, to assume that we have the capacity to exhaustively look for and find life is, is again, an example of hubris, I would suggest. But, hmm. you know, and the, but again, the, the, the farce I was speaking of is that while SETI's looking out there, they have all this evidence that they're already here, <laughs> right? And and may have been around longer than we have. It may be more mm-hmm. their planet than it's ours. Like, you know, these are, again, mm-hmm. assumptions we bring to the table. All right. Wow. Great points. Um, so thank you for touching on my next question uh, of ETs. Uh, why, why are they here? And, you know, what do they have to do with us? I think, you know, uh, when I was younger, I was like, oh, I, aliens, they're, they're probably true. Um, but, you know, I just like, why, why do I care? You know, and until I figured out um, more what, what the purpose was, uh, that's what really drew my interest in. Right. So, you, so your question is about what is their purpose? Why are they here? Yeah. Well, what do they have to do with us, their interaction right, with right, us? Right. Excellent question. Yeah. I mean, that, that in some ways is the million dollar question. Um, because again, the, the sort of sci-fi notions that some ufologists wanted to limit this to was that it must be some sort of like Star Trek kind of thing, right? That they're just like traveling the cosmos and boldly going where no gray alien has gone <laughs> before, right? But, uh, but that's not what we see. We see, uh, you know, when you think about someone like Jacques Vallée and how his work uh, leads him to believe that we may be dealing with one phenomenon uh, over the full expanse of human history, but that just manifests in different ways, perhaps partly because we interpret it based on our current cultural milieu, but also maybe because they have the power to interact with our collective consciousness and show us things that not only um, seem resonant, but are also like taking us to the next level. Like they're actually designed to make us expand our consciousness and our imagination. Mm. So he gets to this notion of a control system hypothesis where he believes they are deliberately most of the time staying on the sidelines and beyond our perceptual awareness but that are nevertheless over time in the business of shaping the course of human civilization. And that they have been from the beginning, which takes us back to our earlier conversation about religions and religious history. And is that perhaps the same thing, right? Like that those were earlier iterations of this control system that's designed to uh, shape the, the direction of human consciousness over time as we grow in our abilities through the evolutionary process of what, or whatever mechanism you want to believe. Uh, we grow on our abilities to perceive more, they slowly give us more and expand our notions, transcend our previous notions, uh, so as to lead us to some sort of um, growing awareness, right? Uh, That may result in eventually us getting to the point where we're ready enough for them to show themselves in the light of day kind of thing, right? Because this has been one of the questions, right? The skeptics bring up, if they're here, why don't they land on the White House lawn or Central Park, Mm -hmm. you know, like uh, and one of the arguments is because they just don't see us as being ready. And on top of that, they, they don't want to do our homework for us. They, they want to actually stand on the sidelines and try to inspire us in, in different ways, maybe. And there's all sorts of evidence that great artists throughout history, as well as great technologists and people who've been cutting edge scientists, have often downloaded 
um, notions that change the course of human civilization that they feel like they don't know how it came to them in a dream or mm. whatever. So this could be this like seeding of ideas coming from outside without ever showing yourself, right? Uh, it's kind of like, you know, mom or dad coming in and like, putting some money where your tooth came out that day under your pillow and then going out back out of the room again, right? That kind of thing. Um, so I think that's that's what's in play. But I would also say that, again, there I think there are many different types of entities here. And, and this is not just me liking that idea because it sounds fun. But again, I look at people like Donald Hoffman and I look at the notions of space-time from Nimar Khani Hamed and whatnot. And in my sense is that it's much more likely that not that there's just one or two more types of life forms and even like origins for life forms, but probably many, many more. Um, so I think there's some overarching intelligence sort of at the highest levels. And if you had kind of a spectrum of consciousness development, where not only do you understand the physical environment more as you develop, like we have compared to our ancestors, but you eventually get to the point, if consciousness is primary and fundamental, you begin to work at that substrate where you can actually you know, you don't need to um, have a door or window. You just go right through the wall because at that point, the wall or physical reality as we perceive it is basically just a thought form for some of these others, right? So they just change it with mental intention alone. So I think at that most expanded kind of perspective, some of those are definitely trying to shape our evolution. And that might've been, you know, uh, something like what people consider a, an angel in the past, Right. Um, or, or something more like uh, an alien today, right? I, I have a friend who uh, her mother uh, experienced something like that when she was younger, and she called it an angel. But when we asked her to describe it, it sounds exactly like what people in ufology would call a light being, right? Hmm. These sort of like rays of light kind of um, dancing in a prism in front of her kind of thing. So what we call these things so much comes down to what categories we have available. But I think when you look at it in the most expansive way, um, while there's many different groups doing different things on different, uh, you know, agendas, I think overall there is also this overarching group that seems to be trying to shape the entire course of our civilization. That's what they have to do with us in the big picture. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, and going back to what you're saying about there being, you know, um, some 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 ETs trying to help us, and then maybe some that are more nefarious. Um, if we go back to um, ancient times and the uh, mythology of Inki and, and Lil, uh, it seemed that one was was using the human race's kind of slaves um, to, to get things from us. And then uh, the other one was saying, hey, you know what? They need to have free will. They need to have intelligence and, and you know, be, not be slaves. That's not right. Um, and so we see from the beginning that, you know, that there was these, these two competing forces are um, do you, do you think that, that ETs have, um, that there was a period of, of, of kind of separation of them not being so involved with us? Um, and then until recently that has, right. they've resolved their contact with us and, um, interaction. Yeah. There seems to have definitely been a ramping up and I would say that's even increasing, you could almost argue exponentially in recent times, which I think everybody that I know that is kind of involved in this topic senses that there are a lot of things changing, right? And, mm -hmm. and the question is why and what does this portend, you know? Um, but definitely in the 1940s, we have this sudden uptick in the number of sightings and interactions 
right at the dawn of the atomic era, right? So that, that's that what I was going like, to go into. Yeah. yeah. Seems like too much of a coincidence, right? To, to <laughs> not pay attention to. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Like if you were a group that's kind of like hanging on the sidelines and letting the, the kids play, right? Like mm-hmm. Lord of the Flies or something. <laughs> that's one thing when they have sticks and stones and clubs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, catapults, you know, even cannons. But when they get to the point when they're like ripping apart the fabric of reality by splitting the atom, right? Um, then you're like, whoa, this is getting out of control. We, we need to step up our game and somehow try to redirect here. Um, so then you have, you know, not only uh, increased sightings, but then things, sightings that have to do specifically with nuclear technology, like this this um, phenomena where they often show up at our nuclear facilities and actually can mm-hmm. disarm our silos, right? So mm-hmm. that if, if during the Cold War, if the Soviets had launched an attack, there are times where we just would not be able to respond because they can just remotely take our, our uh, missile silos offline. So, and some people have suggested that, that that's like a coded message, like, what are you doing? <laughs> why, why do you have enough weapons to like destroy the world several times over? You know, mm-hmm. what, what's the point? Do you not see how you're all connected to each other and connected to source, blah, blah, blah. So, um, you know, the, the, the famous Trinity crash uh, that Jacques Vallée documented in his most recent book, was at the very site of the very first atomic bomb test, right? The Trinity site, right? So what are the chances that one of the first recorded events of a UFO crash was at the very, very location where we happened to detonate the first atomic bomb that very same year? So you have time and place overlapping. Mm-hmm. Right? So certainly seems to suggest that there's a relationship there, right? That that's, uh, that's pointing towards something. And on top of that, we've got speaking of technology and developments, we're now got AI, right? That is, it is mm. quickly outpacing our understanding of how it's not only how it's going to impact our world, but even how it's even working. Right. I, I have friends who are, again, my background is partly in software engineering. So I understand some of the models that are used to, to train some of these systems. And I have friends who are really on the inside in terms of understanding the cutting edge uh, technology with AI. And they get to the point where there seems to be this kind of multi-dimensional kind of calculation happening that ends up with the right answer, but we're not able to determine how it got mm-hmm. to the right answer. Right? Right. Which, which, which begs the question, could at some point it be operating so quickly and so powerfully that we would just suddenly not have the ability to stop it? And you're kind of like in Terminator territory, right? Right. It's like Elon Musk warns. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So now we get this like crazy historical event where all these leading, you know, uh, technologists join forces and saying, we need to just stop. We need to pause. <laughs> right. When in our history have we ever paused the development of technology, right? Mm-hmm. They're saying this is such a threat to our civilization, not maybe just because you could have a Skynet kind of thing like Terminator where they turn against us, but even just how destabilizing it'll be for the economy, right? Mm-hmm. That we, we don't have an economy that can handle mass shift in suddenly robots and AI being able to do 70% of the jobs that used to be right. done by humans, right? Mm-hmm. So, so this is a real thing to, to think about. Now, I'll just say as an aside, if we do give it some thought, we, we could actually end up with something like, um, you know, a kind of a basic income that's that's supplied mm. to the populace by taxing these systems that basically could run everything else, right? We could mm-hmm. actually use this uh, as a tool to transform the nature of people's relationship with work, right? We don't necessarily all have to keep working in the future. We could have robots and AI doing a lot of that. And on top of that, they could also help solve many of our most challenging conundrums around, you know, climate change and distribution of resources, right? 
So capitalism has been the, the best of some bad models, right? Um, just pragmatically. But now we have an opportunity to actually move beyond that, to just transcend that if our consciousness would allow it. The biggest challenge I see right now in all this is not AI. The problem is that our consciousness is still stuck in a zero-sum game mm-hmm. where someone's going to try to game the AI system to get all the all the cookies at the expense of everyone else. If we were to use that, if our consciousness was such that we could operate as a collective, AI could be an incredible tool to move us forward. But unfortunately, we're not there yet. So it's more about us than it, really. Um, but yeah, what was the what was the original question? <laughs> right. This is great. You're bleeding into another podcast episode I want to have about AI specifically. Right. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll have to have you on as well as my other friend on this. Uh, right. This great stuff. Um, yeah, we're just talking about um, ETs and their their agenda for with us. Um, I don't know if you at this point would be a good to get into a 2026 event that you were talking about earlier. Yeah, I mean, so one of the other really interesting uh, aspects of this phenomenon that also kind of relates to religious history, which maybe again suggests that maybe there's a there there, that there's something overarchingly true about all of it, right, that's somehow connected, is this sense of kind of like an end times or an eschaton or an apocalypse, right, a cataclysm. So, so many people who encounter even very positive beings, ones they perceive as very benevolent, will be shown apocalyptic images of the earth, right? Almost like, uh, you know, reminiscent of the book of Revelation, right? That mm. kind of thing. Um, and sometimes it's quite symbolic, like things like seeing the earth on fire from space, which is not likely going to be what they'll see, but it symbolically just says the earth in severe distress, right? Mm-hmm. So um, all that is to say, many, many experiencers, the people who've encountered the beings and, and even had sightings and then had kind of telepathic communication, um, have sensed that some sort of apocalypse is coming, that mm. that part of the uptick, this is what we're getting at. I remember now the question was around, <laughs> is there been an uptick in the number of sightings and right. interactions and intervention, right? Before I got on the AI tangent. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's there seems to be. And, and one of the suggestions is it could be related to this kind of potential coming cataclysm, right? That say if this some groups or some intelligence had seeded our civilization, like the very origins of our civilization, perhaps, you know, came from some sort of seeding program, then maybe it gets to a certain point where it's time for the report card, you know, and either, either you pass the course or you don't. And, and maybe, you know, we're at a point now where again, because we are so, even though our consciousness seems kind of bottlenecked, our technology keeps increasing in its capacity, right? So, not only do we have kind of a collective insanity to, on our planet where we have all these weapons pointing towards each other, and now we've got nations doing all this development work on bioweapons, right, which are just as dangerous, if not more, than nuclear weapons, right? And now you've got, we're becoming more and more of an information economy. Now you've got people looking into like techno weapons, right? And, um, you know, try to EMP pulses or whatever to wipe out the infrastructure of another country, right? So these are all signs that our technology is increasing. We can now, you know, speaking of Elon Musk, wants to take us to Mars, right? So wants to export this collective insanity onto other planets, right? <laughs> so if you're an overarching ET or interdimensional intelligence or an intelligence that's outside of space-time altogether, you might go, that's not such a great idea. Like, you, you guys are bottlenecked. You're increasing your capacity to cause damage, inflict damage, and you're not your consciousness is not keeping pace at all, right? And that 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 separation is increasing. 
So that may be why there's been this uptick and that maybe this 26, 27 thing may have been about like a kind of reckoning, like hmm. uh, not necessarily an apocalypse, but at least uh, something needs to change. Like the status quo cannot continue, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I think that John Ramirez, that that ex-CIA analyst has said that it's not so much about a cataclysm, I don't think, so much as some sort of major reveal of some sort. So maybe that's when the ETs or the interdimensionals or whatever you want to call them show up, you know, like Mm -hmm. people look up and the sky is full of craft or something like that, or they do land on the White House lawn, you know, and uh, also in Moscow and, you know, different places, Tehran and whatnot. Maybe so, but but um, it's kind of unclear. But there's there's some sense that something's coming, and you see you hear whisperings both of some sort of major reveal, and or some sort of potential coming cataclysm, right? So when we look even at the work of someone like Graham Hancock, right, who's who's suggested mm. he's he's evidence for previous kind of cataclysms, and it might be a cyclical kind of thing, right? right. That comes around ten or twelve thousand years. Now some people think immediately. Oh, that's some sort of cosmic event that that's just a re, re, you know recycling part of the you know the physical universe. Maybe something comes too close to Earth orbit and causes magnetic shifts or whatever. But you know, there's also this notion: if there is this overarching intelligence that's kind of controlling our development, then they may be the ones that have set up that kind of system, so that there comes this time where there's this kind of reckoning. Can this group move forward or do we need to reset again? Right. So speaking of, again, religious history, things like the global flood, right. These things like Mm -hmm. this, um, is that, I mean, when I was studying this, you know, we were sort of taught, you know, that this is, um, metaphoric, right. This is, you know, don't take it seriously. This kind of thing can't happen. These people were pre-scientific. So maybe it was like a regional flood, like Lake Superior or something, right. Not the globe. They had no notion of a globe right at Mm -hmm. that point. All these things are true, but, but, maybe we shouldn't leap so quickly to that conclusion. Maybe there is evidence even in the fossil record and the geological record for massive floods. And when you think about how much of the planet is actually filled with water, just like when you think about a tank and if you tip it up quickly, I mean, that's a very unstable situation. So if we had a massive, uh, you know, tectonic shift or magnetic shift, uh, you, you could have, you know, unheard of size tsunamis kind of wiping over the planet kind of thing over the landmass, which is the minority of the planet. Right. So certainly possible that many, many things we know scientifically, many, many things could be cataclysmic for us. And what's interesting is when we look back at history, uh, it may be that this has happened before and that maybe even based on the timeline and based on all this perfect storm of things arising, AI, you know, our, our warlike nature, how we're still so divisive, how we do all of that while at the same time still not really growing our consciousness, not acting like a single body trying to do the best for all, um, that that maybe some sort of reckoning might be coming. That's one of the possibilities. Right. Um, and there's you know a lot of people that um, are aware and um, point to all these different things um, like uh, the the minds and and you know the calendar ending in 2012 right. and Hopi prophecy and then. Um, they're aware and tracking, uh, like, uh, solar flares, like sun, sun flares that are seemingly, um, that seem to be uh, increasing and even the magnetic poles that are shifting faster than they have before, um, that might be pointing to, uh, some of the things you're talking about as well. Absolutely. That's the thing, right? Like when you actually start paying attention to this stuff, right. you realize, like, I remember that, that, um, that meteor that came and hit Russia, you know, when was that 10 years ago or something? Um, 
we didn't see it till the last minute because it turns out mm. that if something comes like I think from like around the sun or something because of the the brightness of the sun and the glare, we often don't notice until it's like a day or two away, right? So we are much more vulnerable than I think most people think, right? So um, something could literally, and I think even even now we're only beginning to put technology in place to try to think about how could we deflect some of these things, but even then. That's assuming you see them coming in plenty of time, right? And that's just assuming only some sort of cosmic body coming, right? Causing the problem. Like you say, if it's a magnetic shift that just happens suddenly, uh, you know, uh, t some tectonic shift, you know, then in geology and, and even in archaeology and anthropology, you kind of have this sense of incrementalism, this idea that things have rolled out in exactly the same way, pretty much in a very predictable manner. And that that's why we went from zero to where we are today as a civilization. There was nobody before us here. But a lot of those are assumptions, right? Because we're getting into prehistory where we don't know what happened before, right? So again, we're looking at hubris, I would suggest again. Um, and sometimes it just seems like almost like wishful thinking. Like we don't really have a lot of evidence to say that we are that stable or that safe. And that maybe it's just wanting to believe we are that kind of puts that forward as kind of the dominant narrative. But I think people like Hancock are making the point that there, there are innumerable things that could, could wipe us out or cause major distress that are purely physiological or, you know, purely physical events that happen that we know about. Like you say, solar flares, right? We're an increasingly technological electronic society. Hmm. You have one massive eruption of plasma from the sun. It's like a massive EMP pulse, you know, wipes out uh, our infrastructure, right? And so then suddenly people, you know, can't get groceries, they can't get gas, mm -hmm. they can't like... You call their friend on their their digital network, right? And then you have we saw what happened with COVID with people like doing a run on toilet paper, right? <laughs> right. Just imagine what would happen if this was going on, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, which again I think speaks to our level of consciousness too, which is a major problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to get to um, how it seems that uh, the uh, ones that the ETs that are trying to help us are, are trying to give us this, um, perspective, this, this growth in consciousness that we are all connected and that we are all one and that we need to start thinking more. Um, one thing I think that just, just the recognition of ETs is that, Hey, we're not, you know, it, it's kind of going back to like when we thought the, the earth was the center of the, of the, of the universe of the solar system. And we realized we're not, and there's, there's a lot bigger, things going on. This is like another perspective shift. Um, things are a lot bigger than us. Um, but, but at the same time, we are all connected in that. Um, I guess some people talk about that, you know, ETs, um, that maybe they seeded us and, and that they're part, part of our bloodline. And so, um, they're also connected to us in that, uh, yes, we just need to think about our, our, our globally and less, um, tribally and, uh, what can we do to come together and figure things out. Yeah, absolutely. And again, what's interesting about that is that that notion that you hear a lot of from some of these others and even some of the, you know, channel material that's been gathered supposedly, you know, about, you know, you know registering dialogues between human beings and other kinds of entities, ETs or interdimensionals, whatever you want to call them. Um, there is that notion that, that, that we are all sort of extension, like fractal, fractal extensions of source, right? Mm -hmm. That we all, ultimately are like leaves on the same tree kind of thing. Um, and that, you know, our, our, our biggest problem as a human collective is that we believe in the illusion of separation, that we think that we are these individual units 
that are distinct from everything else. A little bit like a cancer cell, right? Like what does a mm -hmm. cancer cell do? It worries about its own self, regardless of the fact that it's actually part, an integral part of a body. And it could actually do things that end up destroying the entire body, right? So um, they're trying to remind us of this fact that we are all connected. And when you recognize that, you just by nature shift your perspective. What becomes a selfish move if you identify as everything and everyone mm -hmm. is you automatically start acting in the best interest of the whole, right? The collective. Right. And as much as people sometimes say, oh, you know, they have this kind of Star Trek mentality of what if they're like the Borg, right? And it's like a, a hive mind like bees. And that's kind of where our fear states go. Mm -hmm. But on the other on the other hand, how much different would the world be if we actually inherently made decisions based on what's in the best interest of us and the animals and the earth itself, right? I mean, it would be completely different. And all of these concerns about AI would not be a problem, right? If we had that perspective, because we would, we would, you know, because the thing is with AI, we seed it with our biases, right? Right. right. So, so if we had Algorithm. different biases, yeah, with the best interest in mind, again, it could be a great tool. But not only are the the others, the ETs, I call them the others more than the ETs, just because, mm -hmm. again, there's the question of what are they ultimately? Right. And if space time is not what we think it is, then these notions are probably too limiting. So I use others just because it's kind of generic. Mm -hmm. um, it kind of works across the board. But not only do we have them, you know, reportedly telling us these kind of messages, but again, ancient non-dual traditions have been saying this all along, right? Mm -hmm. That um, That we are all fractal impressions of source and that we're all connected in that um, you know, duality is an illusion. Uh, when we act as individuals, we're, we're believing in a separation that's ultimately illusory, right? So whenever you act based on things that are not true, you're going to have bad results in the long run. And that's basically right. the message. But again, not only from these ETs, but also from these ancient non-dual traditions. And also the findings of quantum mechanics seem to be pointing in that direction that even things that manifest as, as, um, objects and and items right even at the quantum level that below that it's basically just a field of energy that has excitations that take the the semblance of a manifestation of something physical right but this this table that i'm knocking on is mostly empty space right and we know that now right so it just we we're being confronted now with recognition that the way the world is put together is not as we perceive it, right? It's really not as we perceive it. So it's mostly a coherent field around this table that gives it the impression of being solid and separate, right? But when you really look at, you know, the quantum level, you, you, these these distinctions are kind of arbitrary, right? It works for us in our, again, again, based on our perception that evolution has served up for us. But at the most fundamental level, you just have a field, right? That has different excitations. So that also speaks to this notion that everything is connected. And like we said, if it's true that consciousness actually is foundational, it's the bedrock from which we get things like what we perceive as a physical world, then ultimately we're all connected. We're all the same thing. Uh, so that makes sense, not only from ancient spiritual traditions, not just from what the others seem to be telling us, but also what quantum mechanics seems to be pointing towards as well. Yeah, man, that that's great. I agree hundred percent. And uh, that's what uh, this podcast is all about. Um, I think going back to talking about the reckoning and, 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 and maybe some sort of catastrophe happening or some sort of collapse. Um, I, uh, kind of referencing Carl Jung, you know, we need to expose the shadow to then deal with it. And so I think right now is that kind of time of, um, you know, 
exposing the shadow, exposing the corruption and, and the evil and and all the, the systems that are no longer working as well and that uh, we need to get past. And, uh, you know, it, it's going to be hard to, you know, we see politicians, we see the right, the left switch back and forth. But it's like, are things really changing? Is there really that much difference? And, you know, I, w- I would say no. <laughs> uh, and so um, obviously it's, it, it's going to be tough and it's going to be hard, but I, you know, I see it kind of is exciting because how else are we going to get to something better if there's not some sort of um, collapse and, and us needing to figure out something better? Yeah, I love that. And I love the the Carl Jung piece because I think he was he was on to something, right? I mean, even if maybe the the ultimate conception isn't quite what he pictured, he was he was right. moving, I think, closer to something, right? And so there's, when you read Carl Jung's works, obviously he said a lot of things and, and you, you see kind of an evolution in some of his thinking to the point where he eventually got to a point where he almost seemed to be saying, I think there's a couple places where he says this outright, basically, that physical reality is the other side of the coin of the collective unconscious. Hmm. So physical reality is the manifestation of, of the the machinations of consciousness, basically, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, so so yeah, then, then you look at it like when we live in such a way that we don't deal with even our own personal traumas, our own personal shadow, and then you get that multiplied, right? In terms of um, you get whole culture groups that have not dealt with it, right? Um, things in our past that, that still, still are there. I mean, this is the thing. If, if this is all kind of energy in the end, in the end that you could think about it that way, then if you don't deal with it, what I like to say to people, both to individuals and to collectives, it's like an app running on your phone in the background that's using up energy, right? Like it's, it's spiraling in the background. You'd never shut down the app because if you have some sort of trauma, both as an individual or as a collective that you've never actually dealt with transmuted then that energy is just like wrapped up in that app and Mm -hmm. it's actually taken away from the core capacity of the phone and the analogy there is to us right that we are not it's not only that we have trauma that's not been dealt with but we can't uh, you know i know your podcast you know becoming who we are we can't fully become who we are when part of us is wrapped up in in not even really processing trauma but just like cycling it right Mm -hmm. And, and and then you take that to a collective level so uh one of the spiritual teachers that really influenced me was a guy named Thomas Ubel uh, from Austria. And he spent years now working with, uh, you know, Europeans, you know, Germanic uh, kind of Europeans and Israelis dealing with the trauma of the Holocaust, right? And and not Mm. just acknowledging it historically, but actually working through and beginning to transmute the energy, that huge shadow that hangs over Europe still today, right? Energetically. So, so absolutely. These are, these are things we, we need to do. And I think that, um, the UFO phenomenon and these messages coming through again, even when they don't try to land on the white house lawn, what I think is part of the hope is that these messages that bubble up about the things we need to pay attention to will eventually capture enough of our attention that we begin to work through some of the Mm -hmm. personal and collective shadow you're talking about, because only doing that will allow us to act in our full capacity and will allow us to see ourselves in the world differently. Right. Um, That's, that's great. Uh, And, kind of going back to what you were talking about, the AI is the AI is just a, a tool that, you know, it reflects us. And that's what I love about, you know, religion and spirituality is realizing that, you know, we can't just change the system because, you know, our hearts have to change as well, our own traumas, our own issues. And so we have to um, go within again, that 
that oneness um, and and change our consciousness, change our perspective, change um, and heal. And so only when we do that are we able to then change the collective and that be a uh, a change that has the the foundation and the roots um, that will last and have a, a great effect, or it'll just become corrupted just like the previous system. Absolutely. And this is where, you know, I know some people land really, really hard on the left or the right politically. Um, I, I tend to be like a meta modern. So I, I sort of like, you know, try to transcend the current kind right. of partisanship. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I would say is that, so sometimes the left leans heavily on um, there being systemic problems, right? That we right. need to adjust, right? If we can just change the way government is run, then we'll solve the problems. Then you get on the right, this sort of focus on individual responsibility. If people would just, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps and deal with their stuff, then they, mm-hmm. they could you know, empower themselves. There's some truth in both of those things. And, and mm-hmm. an in-between of like culture groups that support us as individuals, right? And families and communities, right? So really a, a sort of, uh, you know, again, I have an integral background too, or we like to say the goal is to transcend and include, right? Yes. So not, yes. not transcend and reject, right? But transcend and include. Because when you do transcend and, and reject, you cause shadow. When mm-hmm. you just say, I don't like this part of you, I'm going to just pretend it doesn't exist, or I'm going to shame it into non-existence, that does not work, right? So I think this is one of the challenges our society is going through right now, is that when we try to increase um, justice, sometimes just shaming the bad mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. doesn't actually deal with it. You have to transmute that energy, right? You have right. to actually change it into something else. Otherwise, it just gets shoved down. It's like that cycling app again, right? That'll eventually raise up in a not very nice way, right? Um, so, so yeah, absolutely. We have to have to keep all in this mind. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I totally agree. I'm right there with you. I, I don't know if you were specifically referencing spiral dynamics, but uh, I, I love that. Mm-hmm. And I plan to have an episode talking about all that, but um, it's all, they are connected to what we're all saying here. Yeah. And I would say that um, spiral dynamics has really informed my perspective, not just of human history, but also of what the others are likely working with as well. Because, mm. um, because I do uh, think there's all sorts of evidence that everything ultimately is one, that ultimately there is, you know, one source and we all are extensions like fractal impressions of that. Then I think the same, even though you're going to get some cultural differences and some species specific differences, just like we get on the earth, Um, nevertheless, there's these underlying core principles, right? So one of the things that's so fascinating about spiral dynamics is that you have this predictable um, sort of trajectory for for consciousness development, right? That you mentioned tribalism several times, right? Mm -hmm. So over time, we can see as much as as people can turn on the news today and things look really gloomy, you know, and in many ways they are. But at the same time, over time, you can see that our notion of uh, like the sphere of care and concern around us has been expanding, right? So at first it's just my family, then it's my tribe, then it's my nation state, then it's my religious group, then it's like, uh, you know, my race. And then it's like, eventually, actually, we need to make room for everybody. And mm-hmm. then now we get more recently, we need to k- take care of the animals, you know, they, they're sentient beings, right? And the goal is to kind of have like a cosmocentric perspective eventually, where you expand that throughout the cosmos, right? So, um, but what that spiral dynamics points towards is that there's this um, this 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 directionality, the teleos, right behind the entire existence, right behind the cosmos, which says to me that these most advanced ones would would not only be technologically more advanced, but they would actually be closer to the heart of source, if you will. Mm. And so, 
um, we tend to, uh, we see this directionality already in, in human development. And I think you can actually apply that across the board, even though, again, you're going to get some differences and whatnot. Um, and it's very complex, but that does inform my overall perspective of, of like where some of these are coming from in terms of their moral imperatives. Right. Uh, I totally agree. Um, I will say that, you know, some people might um, um, shoot back and uh, I would agree to a certain extent that, you know, just because uh, we're advancing technologically, like some of these um, others have, but they are, are still very dark and um, some, some spiritual say service to self. Um, but right. it does seem that, you know, the more you advance, the more that that takes, um, we can see that in our own society, uh, cooperation and collaboration and this um, unity, this oneness, and that um, eventually, if you if you don't have that, it's going to collapse. Um, and so it's like they right. can only advance so far in this right. technological way before it collapses. Right. And, and when you said service to self, were you referencing the raw material there? Um. I don't. I, I guess that originates there. I'm not for sure, but uh, right, because the reason I bring it up is because if you remember, what's interesting about that is exactly what you're saying. You can keep progressing technologically for a ways, even beyond mm -hmm. sort of the 3D construct we have. Right. But if you remember in that channel material, you actually get to some point where there's a roadblock, and you cannot go any further in development unless you choose to align with source mm -hmm. and align with the perspective of service to others, right, and service right. to the all kind of thing. So, so yes, I, I absolutely uh, believe that's true. And that's why I say when some light, love and light people, I think, make that mistake, they sort of go, well, if they're technologically more advanced, they must be more morally mm -hmm. advanced. And I don't think that's a one-for-one one truth, right? right? And, and one of the things that people like Ken Wilber and Integral taught me is that there's different lines of intelligence, right? And you can proceed in one and actually be fairly, you know, developmentally challenged in another, right? So... Mm -hmm. Someone might have a great aesthetic intelligence or mathematical intelligence or interpersonal intelligence, right? But you look back even our own history, some of the most sophisticated technology was the Nazis, right? And would we call that like the epitome of moral you know, <laughs> advancement? No, right? Mm -hmm. So we see already evidence that, that those sometimes you get an outpacing that happens where one is ahead of the other. But, I, but like you kind of hinted at, I think in the long run, though, when you get really at the higher levels, it becomes increasingly difficult to keep progressing without that kind of um, understanding of the resonance of the whole. And I think there's even in our own society, there's this some sort of statistic someone found one time that any two countries that like had a McDonald's, I mean, that maybe that's changed now, but there was a way, there was a while there where any two countries that had a McDonald's would had never gone to war. <laughs> right. In other words, there's something about once you have this interconnected kind of even like market-based system, it really mm -hmm. changes the, 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 the calculus. So I right. think that happens on a big cosmic level ultimately. Right. I was really interested in, um, you know, obviously it's, it's a tragedy at the Russia Ukraine war, but I was really interested in um, how countries were trying to economically uh, punish Russia. And I was like, is that going to work? You know, is that a new way of warfare where we don't actually have to kill each other? And, and so, you know, I don't know if that, that seems to not be so effective because some countries are like, hey, we'll still give you stuff. But it was a really interesting uh, experiment. <laughs> no, it's true. And, and then the, the, the argument there is that um, Putin, like, spent a long time, maybe even years, undergirding the economy and storing up, you know, uh, mm. gold and money so that reserves, so that it, it could, like, withhold the attack of an attack on its economy, right? Mm. Um, 
but there's something to what you're saying for sure. Hmm. Yeah. Well, man, this has been, been great. It's been amazing. Is there uh, anything you'd like to uh, add uh, at the end? Just that I think, you know, one thing I do like to point out to people is that I do think um, for many, many reasons, it's, it's clear that we are kind of at a, a key inflection point as a civilization and we need, do need to wake up. Now, whether you mm -hmm. say that that's some group of others that's, you know, uh, making you aware of that notion or you're just looking outside or watching the news and it's becoming very clear to you that we are at a point of no return, perhaps. And we really need to like fundamentally rethink how we exist together. And on the planet, I think we're absolutely at that point. And um, I think all of this work that I do, um, that's my main concern, actually, is like, how can we use all of these different inputs to really inspire our imagination to think about how to do things differently and not just tweaking the system, but fundamentally changing how we show up? Uh, because I think that's actually what's necessary. And all the evidence of that is all around us. Yeah, I, I totally agree. That's, that's great. Um so Darren, obviously, again, he has his own podcast. Um, you know, this is just a, a little condensed taste. Um, I really appreciate how in-depth and thorough and, and logical he presents everything, goes into everything. Um, and so I'll reference that in the show notes. Um, and yeah, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. I did too, Kendall. Great questions and a great conversation all around. Awesome.